Would you remain standing and we'll, we'll give attention to our scripture today, which is found in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. And believe it or not, this is our last passage in part one of our study. We'll pick it back up in the spring, but we'll finish today here in this passage. This is a very dense and rich passage, so I want to encourage you to, to listen to the words and then we'll jump into them and, and teach through them together. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. This is God's word to you today. Paul writes, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that The law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, am I really the one doing wrong? It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, 
But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you. What a passage. What a passage. I want to encourage you, if you have um, a pen or your phone, place to take notes, to, to jot down some notes today. We're going to finish again part one of Romans, and we'll pick it back up, part two in the spring. But it's appropriate for us to finish with this passage because this passage really brings everything that Paul's been talking about in the first seven chapters together. And last week, if you were here, I introduced a metaphor to kind of hold the things that Paul's been talking about in our brokenness and the gospel and how the gospel works in all the places of brokenness in our lives and reminds us of these two boxes that the enemy is constantly wanting us to get in. Do you remember this? Our boxes of self-centeredness. And what's the other one? Self-righteousness. And in Romans 1 through Romans 3, Paul unpacks, no pun intended, these two boxes and tells us how our enemy is at war with us constantly. He repeats that theme here, constantly trying us to get back in the boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And these boxes are perfectly designed for you as a trap so that you just exist in them and you never experience the life that God really wants for you. And Paul explains as he goes further in the letter of Romans and in chapters three, specifically in forward, the power of the gospel to free us from the boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. That there's a, a third way, if you will, that isn't a box, but instead journeying with God, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, walking with God as their friend, flourishing in the garden, having life, as Jesus said, John 10, 10, and having it abundantly. And that's the power of the good news of Jesus, that he came to do for us what we could not and what you would not do for yourself, because we exist in the boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness left unto ourselves. And we learned last week the principle of obedience or volition or choice. That is that God under his sovereignty gives us the opportunity to choose to obey his good and perfect will for our lives or choose to disobey it. And we talked about, or Paul talked about, that every choice that I make is either taking me closer to God and becoming who he really made me and designed me to be or further away from God. He says it this way. You can go back and review it at the end of chapter six, the beginning of chapter seven. He said, my choices are either bringing life or death. And we talked about it this way, that what I behold, what I lift up in my life, what I worship, to use that word, I become. What I behold, I become. So whatever it is that I'm beholding in my life, I'm becoming with every choice more and more like said thing. And so Paul presents the opportunity for us to behold the gospel, the goodness of Jesus, and become more beautiful in the ways that God created us to become through the power of his gospel of grace. Or the choice to walk away and to continue to live in the boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness because of our rebellion. Now, to our passage today. Paul's gonna bring all of this together, our brokenness, the gospel, and then how we live out of the gospel. In other words, how we intersect the gospel with our everyday lives. And he starts here, if you have your scriptures, look at verse seven. 
he starts by asking the question, is it the law or God's standard or the word he uses here is his command that actually caused me to sin? And what Paul says in response is, no, it comes from within. There's a war raging within us. And the rest of the passage, verses 7 through 25, if you're taking notes, it's the war within that Paul is going to describe and explain to us how the gospel intersects with my own sin and brokenness and rebellion. It's still at war within me. And just like, you know, all of us try to get off the hook for things that we've done wrong in our life and to blame and point fingers at other people, there were people in Paul's audience in the church at Rome that he wrote to that were saying, well, it must be God's law that caused me to sin. You know, the devil made me do it. Have you heard that before? It was uh, God's law that made me do it. If, If there wasn't, which this is a statement about our culture right now, if there wasn't a rule, then I wouldn't have broken the rule. So because you, you, you gave a boundary and a rule, you're the one that did it, God. If you never gave a law, then I wouldn't have sinned. And Paul says, of course that's not true. It's so much deeper than that. And remember, friends, just in context, that the boundary, the first boundary given in the Bible happens in Genesis chapter 2. Man is created at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Why is this important? Because God created us in his image, male and female, he created us. And he created us with a perfect design and a purpose and to be a reflection of his image. We're the crown of his creation. As people, he made us in his image, every single one of us, and gave us a purpose and a design to flourish in a journey with him. And then he gives a boundary in chapter 2 saying, hey, you can eat of everything in the garden and enjoy it and flourish within it except for one. And what's the principle of this? The boundary was to keep free people free. The boundary or the law or the command was never to liberate people. Moreover, think about Moses. Moses receives the Ten Commandments after he liberates the people of God from Egypt, after 400 years of spiritual and physical slavery. What's the principle? The law or the commands were given to keep a liberated people liberated to keep free people free. The law was never created to liberate people. And so Paul says, if you're blaming the law and saying that it's the reason why you sinned or you're broken, you're missing the point. It's so much deeper than that. Paul says, it comes from within. There's something deep inside of me that is flawed and broken. And Paul's gonna point us back to that. He says, the law, look at verse seven, is actually good. It, it, it showed me, it revealed how short I fall from God's standards. We talked about last week that some people see the, the law or God's commands as a fence. And it feels like it's a fence that keeps me out. I can never be good enough. Or it's a fence that keeps me in. I can never really enjoy life, which is a total misunderstanding of the law. The law was meant to help us flourish and enjoy all the good things that God created in the ways that he created for us. And I presented last week a better way, I think, to understand the law biblically, and that is a front porch light. It orients us back home. It shows us the way back to the love of the Father and the one who's waiting for us with a place at the table to welcome us. The further I get away from home, the the more distant the light is. The closer I get, the more inviting it is. And I want you to think about this. Think about, you know, the most probably famous story that Jesus told in terms of a paternal relationship was the father and his prodigal son and and the older brother. He had two sons. And, And by the way, both sons were missing God. And guess which boxes they were in? Think about it. 
The younger brother, the prodigal who gets most of the attention is the self-centered, hedonistic, materialistic, gonna live life to the fullest, do whatever I wanna do. But there's a secret one who's missing God too, the older brother who's self-righteous, who thinks he's better than. And the front porch light of the father is inviting both the younger son who's self-centered and the older brother who's self-righteous back home. And that's what the law does for us. And so Paul says, the problem folks is not the law. It's deeper than that. Look at verses eight, 11, and 13. He's gonna tell us what the problem is. The problem is sin. What is sin? It's missing God's mark. To say it another way, it's trying to fulfill a good desire in a way that God never created for that to be fulfilled. So I desire for intimacy, I desire for love, I I desire to be accepted. But instead of finding those things in the ways that God created for me and within the boundaries of those things that God created for me to find those good desires, I find other ways to meet those needs. And it goes on and on and on. And so Paul says, it wasn't the law that caused this, it was something within you, a rebellion that exists within you, it was sin. And what does sin do? Look at verse eight. He says, sin deceives us. Guys, the greatest lies that we tell are the ones that we tell ourselves. And Paul says, sin deceives us. And that deceit corrupts our relationship with God and other people. And it corrupts the way that we relate to God, namely through his law or his his boundaries that are good and for our flourishing and for life. It corrupts that. And here's how it corrupts it specifically if you're taking notes. It makes me think that in my self-righteous box that I can achieve God's standard. I can be good enough. I'm a moralist. I can be a good enough person to be accepted by God. Most people, when you ask them, hey, if you died tonight and you stood before God and, 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 you, and you said, God, let me into your heaven, why, why would God let you into his heaven? What would be the answer that he would give? And most people would say, because I'm a good person. I've done more good than I have bad. It's the old 51 to 49. And I'm just going to eke my way in. And I'm hoping that God maybe grades on a curve and that he, that he sees all the good things that I've done and they can somehow outweigh my bad. What is that? It's moralism. It's keeping a scorecard and thinking I can be good enough to achieve it. And sin deceives me and makes me think I can achieve it. But also, watch this, sin also deceives me and thinks I can override it. Self-centeredness. There is no standard. There is no law. It's whatever I think. Everything's relative. Why would I believe someone else's law or certainly God's law in my life? I don't believe in any of that. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do. So the first box of self-righteousness and the ways that sin deceives me, you might call religiosity. But the second box of self-centeredness and overriding it, you know, we would call rebellion. It's the rebellious nature that each of us has within, Paul says, And let's just call it what it is, what Paul calls it. He says it's sin. And here's the deal, guys. The underlying motive of sin, whether it's by achieving, you know, God's standard, thinking we can do it on our own through religion or overriding it, you know, through our rebellion. The underlying motive of sin is to play God. It's to be like God. That's the first temptation in the garden. Eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. We want to be our own gods, to call the shots, to to do it on our own, 
to be in control of our lives. And where does this come from? Paul says this comes from not the law, not from God, not from your neighbor. It comes from within. There's something inside of me that's broken. Listen to this, verses 14 and 15 again, Romans 7. So the trouble, Paul says, is not with the law. For the law is spiritual and it's good. And if you're underlining or highlighting on your phone, highlight, underline this. The trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. And man, this is a stunning verse. I don't really understand myself. Whoa. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. And instead, I do what I hate. Paul says, the trouble is me. This is the original Despicable Me movie right here. This is what Paul says. It's me. The problem is me. The problem is not God. The problem is not my neighbor. The problem is not my circumstances, my job, my boss, my finances. The problem lies within me. And listen, Paul was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He studied the law of God from 13 all the way up. His whole life he devoted to the law. And what do we learn from this? Knowledge of the law is not enough to overcome the effects of sin. Paul was certainly a follower of Jesus, a passionate follower of Jesus, and he passionately wanted other people to find and follow Jesus. But that wasn't enough in and of itself to overcome the power of brokenness and rebellion within him. And if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, and I hope you'll go back and read this passage and meditate on it further, Paul lays out this inner battle, this struggle within. In verses 14 and 17, he just states it. And then in 18 through 20, he restates it. And then in 22 and 23, he summarizes it. Do you think he's trying to say something? He's saying, guys, this came from within. There's a battle that's going on. Listen to the language. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do them. It's a battle. There's something happening inside of me. And we need to be aware of it and pay attention to it. Now, I want to just make a couple of observations about this passage that I think are very important as we study it. The first is that some people, and if you are reading this in your study Bible, which I hope you will, if you have a study Bible, this is a great passage to read and read the study notes in the commentary. If you need a study Bible, we have some here. We'd love to give you one. Some commentators have said that this passage, Romans 7, 7 through 25, is Paul talking about himself before he became a Christian, before the road to Damascus, before he, he met Jesus, before he began to follow Jesus. And so in some ways, we're able to kind of punt on the hard stuff here because, oh, this was all before you met Jesus. So when Paul talks about his struggle within and the war within him, we just go, oh, well, that was before he met Jesus. And now that he's met Jesus, everything's okay. Here's the problem. The, the verb that's used in verses 7 through 13 in the Greek is in the past tense. And the verb that's used from verses 14 forward all the way through 25 as Paul unpacks this war within is in the present tense. So why would Paul be talking about himself as a, a pre-Christian or someone before he met Jesus in the present tense? That doesn't make sense. 
Look at verse 22, where Paul says, I love the law with all my heart. Have you ever met someone who doesn't know Jesus that says, I love God and his ways with all my heart? I haven't yet. Have you ever met somebody before they meet Jesus that says, what a miserable person I am without Jesus? I haven't met them yet. Have you ever met someone who, before they met Jesus, would say, I know nothing good lives within me? I I, I haven't. This is Paul talking about present tense Paul, the apostle Paul, and his wrestling and his struggle with sin actively. And why is this important? Because if you're a follower of Jesus in here, watching online, the struggle with sin is real. And learn this from the Apostle Paul, that there's an ongoing battle within you between your old self, sin nature, and your new self, alive in the spirit, your new identity in Christ. And can we, just for a moment here, can we just celebrate and recognize the vulnerability of this passage? I mean, you want to talk about somebody getting real, transparent, vulnerable. Paul says, what a miserable person I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I really want to do. And he's naming in front of everybody his battle and his struggle. And so many of us, we suffer with this battle in secret. And we think that because I suffer and struggle with sin and brokenness, that something's wrong with me. And I hope that you'll hear from this passage. This is the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. I still struggle with all of these things in my life. And he is appropriately, and by the way, there is an appropriate way to be transparent and vulnerable. He is appropriately being transparent and vulnerable with his brokenness and his rebellion and his ongoing struggle with sin. This is beautiful. Of course Paul wanted to be accepted. Look at his letters to the church at Corinth. He's defending his ministry. He's talking about his credentials of being an apostle. and all. There's, there's this wrestling that goes on. He wants to be accepted desperately. He wants to, uh, to have a ministry with people and for them to know that he's met Jesus. But he's also saying, I'm so broken. I still struggle with my sin. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I, I do them anyway. And, and what's the reason that Paul, just before we move on, how can the apostle Paul, I would argue the most influential person in Christianity, maybe in all of the world other than Jesus, the Apostle Paul. How can the Apostle Paul be so real and vulnerable in front of us about his brokenness, his struggle with sin, his own rebellion, the ways that he's tempted to get into his boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness all the time? How can he do that? How can we do that as followers of Jesus? Paul is so rooted in the story of the gospel. His life is so firmly planted in who he is in Christ. And he knows that this question of identity, of who he really is, has already been settled. And he is so rooted in the story of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for him, that he's able to say, you don't know the half of it. You think I'm bad? You don't even know. Let me tell you how bad I am. He's able to be so transparent, so vulnerable because he knows his true story. 
He knows what Christ has done for him. He knows that nothing good lives within him. And it wasn't because of his self-centeredness or self-righteousness that he's accepted by God. And here's the thing, friends, we can too. We can be vulnerable and open with our struggles. When we're rooted in the gospel, there's something so beautiful here about the Apostle Paul displaying this for us, but also displaying his, his absolute rootedness, his clenching and holding on to the gospel with every ounce of his being because he knows that he needs Jesus and nothing else. And this gets to my third observation, which is really about identity. It's about who Paul really is, his true self. And when I say that true self, what do I mean? I mean the true person of Paul. As we read this passage and in other places in Romans and some of Paul's other letters, we see this wrestling back and forth between almost two boxers in a ring going back and forth, his sin nature and his nature that's now been regenerated by Christ. We see the flesh and the spirit going back and forth in a, in a heavyweight fight, right? These two, these two entities going at it. And Paul says for us, you know, who is the real person of Paul? Who's the real Paul? And maybe you would ask that of yourself. Who, fill in your name. You know, would the, would the real put your name in there? Please stand up. Who, is, who, who are you really in your identity? Who's the true self here? And I want you to see how, how rooted Paul really was in his true identity and self. And knowing his story and, and who he really was in Christ. Because for those of us who are Christ followers, the answer of who we really are has already been answered for us. This question's already been settled, even though, listen to this, the conflict has not been settled, but the question has been settled. Look at verse 20 with me, Romans 7. Paul writes, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. Full stop here for a second. Three personal pronouns there, I, I, I. Now listen to how he describes his sin nature, the other entity. It, it is sin living in me that does it. In other words, the real story, my true self, is I don't want to do these things. I'm not really the one that's, that's doing the wrong things. It's my old self. It's my old flesh that's doing it. It's not really who I am. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I I love God's law with all my heart. That's my true self. If you want to answer this question for yourself, the way to get at who you really are, your truest self, your truest identity is your deepest desires. What is it that I desire most? What is it that I long for most? I have all kinds of different desires. But what is the prevailing longing and desire of my heart? That is the truest version of myself. And this is Paul saying, the deepest longing of who I really am is to love God. That's who I really am. But I'm also appropriately recognizing that there is something deep within me that still rebels against God, that still wants me to get in the boxes of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And it is a battle it's a war. And he says, by the way, I am powerless in and of myself to win the battle. Which takes us back to verse 6, where Paul says, my new life now is lived not in the flesh, but in the spirit. It's the spirit of God that lives within me 
that allows me to overcome my old self. Left unto myself and my flesh, I'm getting beat up in the ring by my old sin nature. I can't do it on my own. It's only by the power of Christ, his spirit living in me, that I'm able to overcome the power of sin. All right, let me finish here. Verses 24 and 25. There's a a rich and a deep comfort and warning that are intermingled in our last two verses in part one here in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. Let me reread the passage to you, and I just want to say a couple things. Paul says, I mean, again, the language here. He says, oh, what a miserable person I am, exclamation mark. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he answers his question. He's reminded of the gospel and who he really is. Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's, here's the warning, guys. There's a warning and a comfort that comes from these two verses. The warning that Paul gives to us, the apostle Paul, near the end of his life, after following Jesus all these years, he's basically saying, no one gets so advanced in their walk with Jesus that they no longer struggle with sin. If you think that you're over this, that I just no longer struggle with this anymore, you are not alive to reality. You have, or more, more importantly, sin has deceived you and made you think that you're much stronger than you really are. Oh, I can drink this. I can look at that. I can go back to that place. I can be with these people. I can date this person. I can take this job. It won't bother me anymore. I'm over it. No. Paul reminds us, on this side of eternity, you are never over sin. It is a constant battle. And let me just tell you, whether you believe in in an enemy of your life and heart, he believes in you. And it's a war. And you're being hunted by him. And he's trying to get you desperately back into these boxes so you can just exist. Instead of coming alive to your true self as God made you to be in Christ and living out of that beautiful story. And here's what I found as well, that the more, you know, and and talking to people who have journeyed for years with Jesus, that I just admire so much their walk with Jesus. Some of you in the room, you know, that you've been walking for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And here's what I've heard from many of you. The more like Jesus you become, the less you feel like Jesus. What do I mean by that? The more holy or like Jesus you become, the less holy you feel. Why? Because the more I'm becoming like Jesus and being conformed to his image, which is the journey of discipleship and following Jesus, becoming more like my master, the more aware of how broken I really am. So interestingly, the more I become like Jesus, the less I feel like him. I'm so aware of my brokenness. Verse 24, what a miserable person I am. I am so aware of my brokenness. This is Paul being so transparent and so alive to his own rebellious sin nature. And moreover, a wounded animal, by the way, which sin is in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's a fatal blow. The enemy has been wounded fatally, but is still alive. And a wounded animal is the most dangerous animal. So Paul warns us, you better be aware that left unto yourself, there is a sin nature, a rebellion that will lead you back to these boxes and away from the life that Christ designed you for. But here's the comfort. 
conflict, temptation, even momentary relapses back into sin are part of the journey with Jesus. This is why the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What does a rod and a staff do? Uh, It pulls sheep back in. Any of you need that? I need the crook around my neck to pull me back in. Uh, I need that sometimes uh, to kind of push me back into the flock, sometimes gently, sometimes a, a little more harshly. And I need that to guide me and direct me in my journey. All of us need to be comforted with the presence of Jesus, walking with him on the journey. And remembering, as I've discovered, that oftentimes in your journey with Jesus, which again is the discipleship journey, it's a step or two forward and a step backwards. And the point is not perfection, it never has been. The point is walking with your master and accepting correction. God disciplines those that he loves. He's pulling us back to himself and the truest version of ourself and the good life that he's designed for us. So this warning and comfort become two prayers. I want you to hear it as we close. Verses 24 and 25. Here's the first cry, the first prayer of Paul's heart for us. He says in verse 24, he says, Oh, what a miserable man I am. Who will free me from this life that's dominated by sin and death? In other words, without accepting the grossness of ourselves, we can never fully grasp the glory of Jesus. Without holding the despicableness of my sin nature left unto itself, I cannot behold the goodness of God's grace for me. The more in touch I am with how miserable I am left unto myself, the more beautiful Jesus becomes to me. That he loved me anyway. That he pursued me and he demonstrated his love for me, Romans 5, 8, by dying for me. And here's the second prayer. Paul answers in verse 25 his own question, who's going to free me from this? Thank God. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. This, guys, this is Christmas. Romans 1 through 7 is the Christmas message. It's the perfect setup to enter into this week. In our darkness and our brokenness of self, a light has dawned. Jesus came to us in that place. This is the reason for Christmas, our need for a savior. We couldn't bust out of the boxes of self-righteousness and self-centeredness. Someone had to come and bust us out and show us another way to live, not being confined by our own morality or hedonism, but by walking with the one who loves us and made us. This is the reason for Christmas. But it begins, I want you to see this. It begins by Paul radically vulnerably confessing his sin before God, before us. For everyone to see his brokenness, his need for Christmas, his need for a savior. So here's what I'd love for us to do before we go. We're about five minutes away from going right back into Christmas week and all the tempo. So I I wanna give you the gift of time. I wanna give you the gift of a moment of peace and space to respond to the word of God and what you've heard today of the message of Christ to you, the offering of Christmas to you. And it begins with confession. So you were handed a card when you came in. And I wanna invite you to take it out. If you need one, we've got several folks walking around with a stack of cards and pens. I want you to take the card and I want you to take the pen. And here's what I would love for you to do over just the next minute or so. 
I want you to write, just as Paul did, this is a confession. I want you to write a confession to Jesus. It might be one word that you write. You know, uh, you've heard me say before, the one word prayer that God longs to hear more than any other prayer from you is help. So that might be your confession. It might be a sentence. It might be something that you need to say to the Lord that you've been carrying as we come into Christmas week that is heavy upon you right now. And I just want to give you the gift, as Paul modeled for us, of confessing this to Jesus. So over the next minute or so, this isn't about your neighbor. You don't need to look around. This is about you. We're not taking these up. Do not put your name on it. All you need to do is write your confession. It could be a word, could be a sentence, a few sentences. Something that you need to say to Jesus in light of what you've heard today and as we, end, uh, as we enter into Christmas week. So take the next moment and write your confession out.